You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and setting aside anthropocentric biases. This is season four, episode five, A Million Alien Gospels. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Ah, it's podcast recording time. Boy, and is it ever. I, I have a stack of books next to me. I think I have one, two, three. I've got six, seven books next to me. Wow, uh, you've got me beat. I only have really? three. Yeah, well, you plus have Harry a, Potter. You have, well, I counted Harry Potter. Uh, oh. You also have, you know, huge shelves of books behind you, um, which you could grab at a moment's notice if necessary. There's a lot on this topic. So it was kind of hard to narrow it down because when I was a senior in college, I got to take a class called Science Fiction and Theology, which kind of is the basis for a lot of my thinking on this podcast and a lot of the really great works of literature that explored this theme. We haven't really talked about them, but we're going to hit on some of them today. Others, maybe I'll just recommend that you read. And I'm really excited about it because this is one of the, like I said, the first topics I ever wanted to explore. And I feel like we had to kind of hone our podcasting chops before we talk about something so vast and wondrous. Yeah. And because this topic we're going to talk about is so vast and wondrous, of course, in a 30 to 35 minute discussion, we're only going to be able to say so much. And uh, hopefully Mm -hmm. that will leave our listeners wondering. And that's kind of my hope for today is that we get to the end of this with a lot of wondering uh, still to come. We're going to do our best and uh, see what happens. Our scripture quotation today comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter one. Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And our nerd quotation for this time is kind of a long one. It's a poem called Christ in the Universe by poet Alice Maynell, who died in 1922. So this poem is over 100 years old. Here it is. With this ambiguous earth, his dealings have been told us, these abide. The signal to a maid, the human birth, the lesson, and the young man crucified. But not a star of all the innumerable host of stars has heard how he administered this terrestrial ball. Our race have kept their lord's entrusted word. Of his earth-visiting feet, none knows the secret, cherished, perilous, the terrible, shamefast, frightened, whispered, sweet, heart-shattering secret of his way with us. No planet knows that this, our wayside planet, carrying land and wave, love and life multiplied, and pain and bliss, bears as chief treasure one forsaken grave. Nor in our little day... May his devices with the heavens be guessed, his pilgrimage to thread the Milky Way, or his bestowals there be manifest. But in the eternities, doubtless we shall compare together here a million alien gospels in what guise he trode the Pleiades, the lyre, the bear. Oh, be prepared, my soul, to read the inconceivable, to scan the myriad forms of God those stars unroll when, in our turn, We show to them a man. 
when you first shared that poem with me a long time ago now, I can't mm-hmm. even remember. Like um, three years ago, yeah, two, that, two years ago. Yeah, that phrase, a million alien gospels, really stuck in my mind. This idea that if and we assume when we discover mm-hmm. uh, alien life on other worlds, and especially intelligent life on other worlds, what does that do to our faith? How does mm-hmm. that change, transform uh, our faith? And that's kind of the question we wanted to talk about today. To talk to me a little bit more about this poem, where, where you found it, uh, how, what it means to you and all that. I found it in that science fiction and theology class. Um, it's in a anthology, the Oxford Collected Book of Mystical English Verse, I believe is where it's published. Um, I don't have that copy on hand, but it's a beautiful collection of poems. And I just love that this poem was written by someone who was born in 1847. And she was imagining how an alien, how the existence of intelligent alien life would expand her faith. She was, a, she was converted to Catholicism. And so she has a very deep and treasured relationship with the human incarnation of the word made flesh of Jesus in our planet. And that she's imagining what sharing might happen between these alien species about God's presence among them. And I love that it's a, it's sort of expanding the idea that like, we're not that special. He's visited other places as well. And, and been there's a million alien gospels and yet in our turn we still have something that is incredibly precious and special that we can share to the universe as well so it's a wonderful balance of i think illuminating the corners of her faith but then also expanding it and that all of it all of it is precious all of it is important and somehow the the knowing that that he has trode, you know, the Pleiades the lyre that they are all these other star systems doesn't diminish from the the specialness of the incarnation on earth, but somehow makes it more special. It just, it blew my mind. And also again, over a hundred years old. Yeah. And and I think the best science fiction helps us to expand our worldviews, uh, helps us to, it, 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 there's some, pro, there's a prophetic nature to science fiction, to good science mm-hmm. fiction, I think, mm-hmm. uh, where the science fiction is written about the future, but it's really about the present which is exactly, we should probably do a whole episode on sci-fi oh, and yeah. prophecy because that's yeah. what prophecy is too. It's a, it's written about the future, but it's for now it's for mm-hmm. the present. And, um, you know, growing up with star Trek, I don't know if I ever really realized as a kid, um, that star Trek's brief from the creator of star Trek, Gene Roddenberry was that there would not be religion in it. That really, mm-hmm. that, that in the 20th, third and 24th century humanity had evolved beyond religion because star trek is such an important science fiction property in my mind it it takes up a a very large chunk of my Mm. fandom space Uh, i haven't had a lot of cause to think about this topic that that you've thought a lot more than i have about until you we, we started thinking about it together and um and then i realized that my favorite passage of scripture actually oh. speaks to this this topic and and um and not the colossians reading we read before although i, I really do love that one it's actually john uh chapter three mm. um john chapter three and the you know the most famous verse of the bible john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life 
the the God loving the world in that verse is not this planet. It's creation, the universe. It's the word in Greek is cosmos, which mm-hmm. is, of course, where we get the English word cosmos. <laughs> as in the cosmos with as Carl Sagan. The cosmos. Yeah. Okay. You know, as yeah. in everything, as in space, the final frontier. Uh, so when when John is reaching for something so much bigger than the planet that John is writing is mm-hmm. writing from this pale blue ball. Um, yeah, and and so then the next verse, of course, uh, after John three sixteen, it um, is for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Not again, not this planet, not one particular people, not you. You have to expand your view so much with these verses, mm-hmm. and it goes back to the prologue of John where we where we see. Uh, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and through him, all things came into being all things, all things, all things, every sun, moon and stars and this fragile earth, our island home and all the others. Yes, exactly. it's not it's not just our, our island home as the Eucharistic prayer see in the Episcopal Church book for Book of Common Prayer 1979 has it, which, <laughs> by the way, is my favorite Eucharistic prayer. Oh, you can so print good. it. You can print it. Uh, take that to the bank, Eucharistic Percy for the win. Uh, <laughs> Not just our island home, but all of the other cradles of, of life and yeah. that we hope exist in the universe that we, I trust that exists in the universe. I, I think that we kind of have to just assume they do considering that there are trillions of planets and stars, mm-hmm. just the, there's no way there's just no way that this is the only place that life exists. Well, and again, I've heard folks say, you know, that the miracle of this earth is that we might be the only ones. Isn't that, that makes us all the more special. And I, I think that the existence of alien of intelligent alien life would make us just as special because it would show the work of our creator in, like we said, a, a million alien gospels all around the, the cosmos. I don't think that we, ha- I think we should set aside, as we said it in our introduction, I think we should set aside our anthropocentric biases and explore what intelligent life on other planets would mean for our faith. What a beautiful expansion of it it could be. Seeing the ways in which God has worked in completely different contexts and completely different ways. By imagining what life might look like on other planets it helps us to expand our view of God and of how God moves through creation uh, because it, it helps us to take ourselves out of our small uh, tribal mentalities and we can put on ever expanding pieces of identity. So I'm not just this person in this one little place. I am now an earthling, <laughs> you know, I'm from this planet. I'm not, you know, I'm a, or maybe a Terran might be the the, the term. Although if you watch Star Trek Discovery, you know, Terrans are bad news. Oh no. Uh, I haven't watched Star Trek Discovery. (laughs) It's great. You should. It's so good. And not just assuming that we here on earth on Terra have the only answer of how God has been made physically present with God's people, but that we are, as Alice Maynell kind of um, had postulated in her poem, we are one of millions of ways in which God has been present among God's people. And again, not depleting from the specialness of Jesus of Nazareth, but showing how incredible it is that God could be present in 
any form needed to redeem and love and be present with God's people. And that's where we delineate, I think, between Jesus of Nazareth and the concept of Christ, or what we might say the second person of the Trinity, um, pulling from the universal Christ by uh, Father Richard Rohr. Uh, he says, instead of saying that God came into the world through Jesus, maybe it would be better to say that Jesus came out of an already Christ-soaked world. Ooh. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of mind-boggling thought. Uh, and then he continues on a few pages later. Numerous scriptures make it very clear that this Christ has existed, quote, from the beginning, the prologue of John, the Colossians reading we just read, also Ephesians. Um, so the Christ cannot be coterminous with Jesus. But by attaching the word Christ to Jesus, as if it were his last name, instead of a means by which God's presence has enchanted all matter throughout all of history, Christians got pretty sloppy in their thinking. Our faith became a competitive theology with various parochial theories of salvation instead of a universal cosmology inside of which all can live with an inherent dignity. Mm. That concept of Christ blessing all of creation or all of creation being blessed because of Christ's presence in and through it. Um, that is what, when I think of life on other planets, I think of that universal cosmology. Um, and then one more little bit here. Christianity has become clannish to put it mildly, <laughs> but it need not remain there. The full Christian leap of faith is trusting that Jesus, together with Christ, gave us one human but fully accurate window into the eternal now that we call God. This is a leap of faith that many believe they have made when they say Jesus is God. But strictly speaking, those words are not theologically correct. Christ is God, and Jesus is the Christ's historical manifestation in time. Jesus is a third someone, not just God and not just man, but God and human together. A merely personal God becomes tribal and sentimental, and a merely universal God never leaves the realm of abstract theory and philosophical principles. But when we learn to put them together, Jesus and Christ give us a God who is both personal and universal. And when I, th those, that framework, uh, which I find very persuasive, um, helps me to see God throughout all of creation and all of the universe, and not just in, um, not just in the place that I can see in the here and now. And at the same time, it helps me to remember that I am walking with God and that, God, that I am in God's presence wherever I am. And I would imagine that somebody on a planet 46 light years away would also have that experience of walking with God because God doesn't care about 46 light years. Exactly. So in preparing for the podcast today, we revisited C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, particularly the first book. Um, I reread Paralandra, the second one. And I think we both agreed that that hideous strength, the third book just isn't it's, really, it's pretty hideous, terrible. And we revisited our favorite author, um, 
of, well, one of our favorite authors of the moment, Becky Chambers, wonderful science fiction writer, um, who is still writing. She's alive. She's not, she's, she's like our age. <laughs> yeah. She's our age, which is terrifying. What have we been doing with our lives? Just making a podcast, whatever. Um, but we specifically looked at, um, this novella she wrote to be taught if fortunate, which is a beautiful meditative, calm exploration of four different worlds and the life that is on them. Um, so in CS Lewis's space trilogy, he's grappling the main character, Dr. Elwin Ransom, which they say is a pseudonym, but then they make a whole big point about his name being Ransom in the second book. I just want to point that out. So anyway, Dr. Ransom visits these alien planets, in this case, Mars in the first one and Venus in the second one, and comes to grapple with the presence of God and the way that these alien species interact with God in a different way than he knows. So Tell tell us tell me why you thought Out of the Silent Planet would be a good book to read. It is a good book, I will say. But what what was your reasoning for that one? I, I think that Out of a Silent Planet. Well, we got to remember that it was written in the middle of the 20th century, um, and that there is still very much a colonial mindset to it. Absolutely. But one of the things that I find interesting is that the colonial mindset of the main character falls away over the course of the book the more he interacts with the locals on Malacandra or Mars, uh, the, f- the less and less the author's uh, own kind of colonial mindset is present, at least with the main character. The other two humans that are on Mars fully uh, continue in that uh, colonial um, imperial mindset uh, up into the point where they start sort of shouting at a a, oh a a guy who's asleep because they think he's the one who's like projecting his voice on on everything. Right. Um, they're, they're talking to actual God. Right. Right. Or are they talking to like the angels? The it's sort of an angel. They're, and, and they're yeah, talking to a messenger of, God. of yeah. God, and they're like trying to wake up the you know scare the the, the fake shaman. Um, yeah. And and that they have they have come to Mars specifically to mine the what they call suns. Yeah, it's gold. It's It's gold. gold. Yeah. They want to exploit this alien planet and they see the creatures on it as beasts, not intelligent enough. And the way they speak to them is, you know, no, no appreciation for their culture, for their linguistic differences. And meanwhile, our main character is a kind of, you know, a a philologist with wanderlust in his soul. And so he wants to get to know these creatures after he finds himself stranded among them. And so I think that that as he moves further into the story and meets more and more of these creatures and recognizes both their alienness from his perspective, but also how similar they are mm-hmm. to to him, um, that they uh, and recognizes that they have a profound religious sense that seemingly has been lost on Thulchandra, which is Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the silent planet, um, out of which nobody has been talking for a long time, apparently. Um, of Satan, right? Uh, there, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> there, there is um, a, a, one of the the types of of creatures in this book. They're called the Eldil, and the way they're described is basically they're these beings of light that you can't really see unless you're kind of looking at the corner of your eye and maybe you'll catch them a little bit and they're, they're there, but they're not really there. And, and it makes me realize we experience everything based on a frame of reference. And for us, our frame of reference is entirely terrestrial. Unless we actually 
became astronauts, which is not likely oh, <laughs> at this point in our glorious. lives. It would be. Um, our, our perspective and our frame of reference is entirely terrestrial. We think of the sun rising or setting, but that's not what's actually happening. The earth is spinning away from the sun when the sun is setting. Ah, uh, right. You we know, are very earth centric. We are, you know, we, we think that we're sitting still right now, but we're really moving at, you know, thousands of miles an hour on the planet. And I think that if we were to discover life on other, uh, other, on other planets, it would help us to expand that frame of reference um, in ways that would be concrete and not just sort of abstract that we we mm-hmm. kind of think about, oh, if we were standing on the moon, our frame of reference would be different. You know, Neil Armstrong can do that. I can't. Um, and I think that a fun science fiction story like out of a silent planet helps us to C.S. Lewis is imagining what that frame of reference would look like from uh, from another planet. And the people on this planet on Mars can see the Eldil, but Ransom, mm. the character has a really hard time noticing them he can hear them when they talk to him and that brings up all stuff about angels and and you know all you know how many other types of being are there that we just don't even recognize because as he makes a point in the in the story we everything that we sense has to do with a certain very small um set of vibrations uh in the spectrum of of perceivable reality there's so much beyond that that we don't that we personally can't uh, interact with, and who knows what kind of life might exist within those other bands, and who knows how God is is revealed through that other life. And not just that, but on you know on Mars, so they have these Eldila that they they essentially are messengers of God, and they listen very you know they follow very closely and speak often about messages they're receiving from these Eldila from. Uh, what they call, you know, wait, Mal Mal Eldil is right. The name that they kind of use for God. So Mal Eldil, the receiving messages, and they're kind of living with this constant, as we have talked about on this podcast, constant searching and looking for God's moving, um, moving conversation with them at all times. And they happen to have these creatures that they can communicate with. And not just that, but they also on this planet, there's three sentient species. There's the the sorns, the tall ones, there's the fuzzy ones, and there's the little, <laughs> the little crafty ones. I forget they're all their names. They've got cute names. Yes. Yeah. The the Hrosa, the Sorn, and the Fiffeltriggy. Fiffeltriggy. How could I forget <laughs> Fiffeltriggy? Um, and he's you know, Ransom spends his most time with the Hrosa, who are the the singers and the poets, and the Sorn are more of the thinkers, and the Fiffeltriggy are the are like the makers. And he sees um how the presence of other sentient species. They, they don't, because they have this close relationship with Mal Eldil, with God, they do not compete with one another for resources. They do not overconsume and overproduce young and have the same problems that we have on earth of, of limited resources or resources being concentrated among a very few and therefore not leaving enough for others or leaving not enough at the depletion of the planet. They exist in this kind of cooperative dance where they know other species are better at something than the other or have a passion for it. And they kind of leave it up to them. Oh, the fiffle triggy. They're the ones who will make the cool, the cool stuff. Um, he tries to give his pocket watch to one of the Hrosa, I think, or one of the Sorns. And they say, you know, basically, no, why don't you give this to a fiffle triggy? That would really thrill them. Yeah. They'll appreciate it more than I will. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that because there are 
these because all three of these sentient species are in tune with one another rather than in competition um they are completely incomprehensible to ransom's uh captors actually the, the the other two men who go with them weston and devine they they don't understand at all how there could be um people living in a society where there aren't where some of them aren't trying to uh lord it over all the others mm-hmm. they or have oppress or... or oppress them yeah and that's and the reason that that it isn't happening is because they are so much more in touch with god than the people of Thulchondra of, of earth are and the, they discuss it in great length towards the end with um, with Weston, with the man who brought Ransom to Mars in order to what he thought was to for a human sacrifice. And he want you know, he wants to conquer Mars so that human beings can live there and expand, ever expand. And essentially, Mount Eldel, God is trying to understand why he would do that. He says, if you don't value this individual man, your, your buddy who you brought here to be sacrificed and you don't appreciate the, the, the humanity, the spirit of intelligent life that exists in all these other intelligent creatures, like what is it about, you know, humanity that you want to preserve? And he can't really answer it. It just goes back to that kind of like a almost capitalistic or exploitative view of the world of, of needing to expand, of needing to have human beings for some reason everywhere. There's something about the self-referential nature of Weston's uh, argument that leaves, that leaves the people of Thulchondra, excuse me, that leaves the people of Malachondra completely confused. Like why, why would you, if you don't even like your own people, why would you want them to expand? And he says, well, no, I'm talking about myself. Ransom, the main character, he initially thinks, you know, he's with the Harasa, the the poet writers, and he hears that the Sorns are like the the thinkers. And he immediately thinks like, oh, they're the ones who are really in charge. They're the ones, you know, the Harasa serve them. And he tries to ask them a question about that. And they just do not, it does not compute. And he eventually comes to realize, oh, none of them rule each other. They are all cohabitating because they're aware of the, that they're all essentially they all have a humanity, a, a personhood, we should say. Sure. Um, yeah. Even if they look different in our different species. And what would what would it look like if we ventured to another planet that had intelligent life, and that intelligent life was not competitive, but was but was interconnected in a community in a way that we have seen on on Earth in here and there, but overall. In the in the grand scheme of things, it's not how earthlings or humans interact with one another. And it's not how we're used to thinking of alien species. They're thinking of, of the formics in Ender's game who, when they first arrive, you know, try to clear out all the humans thinking that we're just bugs or in Pacific Rim, they're doing that too. Oh, or Independence um, Day. Yeah. Independence Day. Yeah. P.S. Just saw Pacific Rim for the first time. Oh my gosh. I've what never a seen movie. it. I've never Dude, seen watch it. it. Everyone should watch it. Okay. Oh, okay. Good. Good. Here endeth my commercial. Um, so we're not used to thinking of aliens as being non-competitive in a lot of those sci-fi properties, whereas something like Star Trek would teach us something different. The Vulcan that we encounter aren't saying, Oh, look, you know, intelligent life on this planet, this random planet we have we have driven past. Let's eradicate them and take their resources. They are like, oh. Welcome to galactic society. Now that you've discovered warp drive. I'm not sure if the Vulcans really think the humans are all that intelligent. <laughs> all right, probably not. <laughs> uh, well, maybe that brings us to, 
that brings us to Becky Chambers, uh, because in her books, that's exactly what happens to the humans. They leave Earth. Um, it's called the Exodus Fleet, uh, which is a great biblical reference, right? The Exodus, <laughs> yeah. um, because of of uh, resource depletion and, and other things. Um, and then generations later, when their fleet is basically breaking down, they are they discover um, the Galactic Commons, which is a whole host of other species that are that are living in community with one another that, that have basically created a United Nations type society where there are species that um, have fought wars against each other over the course of history, but at the moment at least are um, in, are having peace with one another. And the humans in these stories are basically the, um, the lowest of society because of their level of technology, their level of understanding of, of other species. And it's interesting because it's the first science fiction that I've read where humanity isn't, even though the stories are about humans, um, like the main characters are human mm -hmm. in all of her stories. They're not necessarily heroic. They're not, <laughs> they're not the best uh, of the best. Right. It, yeah. You know? No one looks up to them. No one wants yeah. to be them. It's like, oh, the humans, those mammals that are so stinky. <laughs> and at the same time, what we do see is in a, um, the author writes the, um, there, what we would call maybe cultural sensitivity with, with a lot of cultural sensitivity, but it's all cultures that she's made up because mm -hmm. they're all alien aliens, uh, at least from a human perspective. Um, and in the the book that we're the little novella that we're going to talk about um to be taught at fortunate i assume it takes place within the same world it's much much earlier than any of this uh any right. of these yeah, other books yeah. there's no there's no discovery although there's a hint potentially of intelligent alien life the life that they discover is not sentient right but they do go to four different worlds and they spend, she's, it's a little book. It's only about 130 pages. She spends about, I don't know, 30 or 40 pages in each place approximately. Awesome. Oh, it's so good. And it's a, it's about this crew, this four person crew who are basically um, kind of space biologists, xenobiologists or whatever, astrobiologists, mm -hmm. there it is. Um, and they're basically just trying to do science and learn about life on these other worlds there they they gain such an appreciation for all the varieties of life um, beyond anything that happens on earth uh, and they link they link things when they name things in the book it's always later like near something that's on earth but it's not a bird and it's not a bat it's worm like yeah not a worm because that would be human centric that would be terra centric anthropocentric well and the title comes from this from the golden record that was recorded um and put on the voyager and it says um we step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship to teach if we are called upon to be taught if we are fortunate and so this crew goes out to be taught and to see what life on other planets what those planets can teach them about how the universe is put together and that basically the, the question they pose, and this is not spoiling anything, the, the question they pose in this whole novella and sending it back to earth is, do you find this valuable? Do you people who are reading this, you know, us, I guess, in a meta sense, but specifically in the book, people back on earth, do you find this useful? She asks, um, what we want you to ask yourselves is this, what is space to you? Is it a playground? 
a quarry, a flagpole, a classroom, a temple? Who do you should believe should go and for what purpose? Or should we go at all? Is the realm above the clouds immaterial to you so long as satellites send messages and rocks don't fall? Is human spaceflight a fool's errand, a rich man's fantasy, an unacceptable waste of life and metal? Are our methods grotesque to you? Are ethics untenable? Are our hopes outdated? When I tell you of our life out here, do you cheer for us or do you scoff? Are astronauts still relevant in your time? We have found nothing you can sell. We have found nothing you can put to practical use. We have found no worlds that could be easily or ethically settled where that end desired. We have satisfied nothing but curiosity, gained nothing but knowledge. So they're asking, what does life out there do for us here on earth? I think if we, you know, if Becky Chambers was writing from a perspective of Christian faith, it would be, what can we learn about God um, from, from the universe? And I guess as a person of faith, I would answer her question about what space is. I would say it's, it's a million alien gospels. It's more chances for revelation. Every microcelled you know, being every multi-celled animal that exists out there, every way that life has found found a path forward um, or hasn't, all of that can teach us not just about ourselves, but about God who made us. This episode on our Ask Us Anything, friend of the podcast, Rick, asks maybe this is a mix of fandom faith and tropes uh but uh, do you two have favorite sci-fi or fantasy religious orders doesn't look good out there <laughs> uh so the challenge with this question is that um in most unfortunately in most sci-fi fantasy fiction religious orders tend to come off as villainous or right, so at least entirely self-interested Right. So thinking of Dune, um, mm-hmm. a the classic work of, right. They are, they are manipulating, they are taking religion and using it to manipulate things to their benefit. So, you know, realist like religion as an exploitative way, we've got kind of a, a diluted or a more, um, not diluted dissolve, like all the walls in Christianity dissolve to kind of get the shepherds in firefly there. But we always see a shepherd book. He's decent. He's lovely. I would totally go by the title shepherd <laughs> if I could get away with it um, because the title I do go by pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd. Um, so um, you, 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 those are your, one of your favorites. What's that? Oh no. I, so I, I wanted, so now that we've mentioned that in most, most sci-fi fantasy, at least stuff that we've read, religious orders tend to be fairly problematic. Um, I want to go back to Becky Chambers because I've been reading her books lately and I think mm-hmm. she's amazing. In her book, Record of a Spaceborn Few, which takes place uh, on that Exodent fleet I mentioned earlier, there are two main characters who aren't clergy uh, per se, but they felt like clergy when I was reading them. Um, one of them is an elderly archivist uh, who also kind of does what we might think of as baptisms or namings of children on, on the, basically here, let's name this new kid. That's on part of the, yeah. And then the other one is uh, a caretaker who is basically Mm -hmm. a funeral, uh, uh, a funeral director or an an undertaker. Um, And the way that they bury their dead in the, in the fleet is by 
basically recycling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she, because she walks with people when, when folks have died, she fills that role of clergy and her story, um, is so beautifully written. Uh, and as I was reading it, I'm thinking, does this, does this, is this author a member of the clergy? Does she have clergy friends? Because this character really, really feels like clergy. And so when I, when I read record of a Spaceborn few, um, both the archivist and the caretaker fulfilled roles that we would think of as clergy roles. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to say those those characters, their jobs on the Exodus fleet in Becky Chambers' book, Record of a Spaceborn Few, is currently my favorite uh, example of uh, what we might think of as a clerical order in science fiction. One standout cleric in space um, I do appreciate is Dr. Anna. I'm not going to pronounce her name, but something Russian. I'm sorry. Dr. Anna, Pastor Anna from... The Expanse. She's a Methodist pastor who um, comes from the Europa, the Jupiter moon. And she kind of gets drawn into the conflict in the Expanse. And I won't go into it mostly because I don't remember the specific plots, but I, but she has all of the features of a cleric in space that I would want to see of gentle, loving, justice oriented, um, and willing to learn new things in an ever evolving world. So way to go, Dr. Anna, representing us young clergy women in space. This time on our book club, we are continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, starting at chapter 19, The Silver Doe. On watch one night, Harry sees a silvery magical doe, a Patronus, which leads him to the edge of a frozen pond. At the bottom lies the sword of Gryffindor. Harry jumps in the freezing water, but the locket pulls tight around his neck, almost drowning him. But Ron pulls him from the water and retrieves the sword. Together, they destroy the Horcrux right then and there, though it puts up a fight by attacking Ron's inferiority complex. Back at the tent, Ron explains how he immediately regretted leaving, but it wasn't until Christmas morning when he heard Hermione say his name that he was able to find them. The name came from the Deluminator, and he followed its light all the way back to his friend's. Oh, Hermione is super angry. She needs the night to cool off. Chapter 20, Xenophilius Lovegood. This is a transition chapter. They go to see Luna's father to ask about the mark that keeps cropping up. There's an arumpet horn in the house. Luna's down by the stream. Oh, and there's a taboo on Voldemort's name. Chapter 21, The Tale of the Three Brothers. The tale goes like this. Three magical brothers cheat death, who then gives them each a gift of the brother's choosing. The eldest gets the most powerful wand in the world, but then he goes and brags about it and is killed for it. Thus, death collects the first brother. The second gets a stone that will bring back the dead, sort of, but he kills himself when the girl he fancied comes back as though through a veil. Thus, death collects the second brother. The third asks for death's own cloak of invisibility and lives out the remainder of his days with death unable to locate him. When at last he is ready to die, he goes with death as an old friend. Lovegood insists against Hermione's objections that the objects in the tale are real and are called the Deathly Hallows. The Elder Wand has a documented history, and Harry has a true cloak of invisibility. Could it be the cloak? But no time to interrogate that yet, as Luna isn't really there, and Lovegood has sold them out to the Death Eaters. 
Chapter 22, The Deathly Hallows. The months pass and Harry obsesses about the Deathly Hallows, especially the Elder Wand, which he assumes rightly that Voldemort desires. Ron takes charge, moving them about the country in the vain search for the Horcruxes, the mission the listless Harry seems to have abandoned. Ron also tries to tune into Potterwatch and finally gets it one day in March. Lee, Jordan, Kingsley, Lupin, and Fred share the news of the murders at the hands of the Death Eaters, as well as brave resistance to the new regime. And for the first time in a long while, Harry feels the weight of tension lift, remembering that there are others out there fighting Vol- No, don't say his name, yells Ron. Voldemort. Too late. Harry has said it, and the taboo brings to their hiding place a gang of snatchers. I only really have stuff to talk about for the Silver Doe and the Tale of the Three Brothers. I don't have a lot in the other two chapters. Me too. Oh, good. Okay. But I do think that the, especially the Silver Doe chapter, uh, I just was struck this time reading through it. The descriptions of Harry uh, seeing the doe and his inner kind of thought process at that point really had a, a kind of a beauty to it. And um, it's it seemed like a form of discernment almost. Um, mm. And then that can, that theme continues on when we hear about Ron too. So we can, we can go there with that too. It says, Harry stared at the creature filled with wonder, not at her strangeness, but at her inexplicable familiarity. Caution murmured. It could be a trick, a lure, a trap, but instinct, overwhelming instinct told him that this was not dark magic. Somehow Harry intuits that this particular magical being is not coming from some kind of dark wizard when pretty much all of the magic that he's encountered since he since the wedding has been evil Bad. and trying to <laughs> kill him but not this yeah uh, and i'm curious sort of with that idea of it being instinctive or the fact that he's filled with wonder mm. uh, if that helps him to open himself up to that encounter with the doe which then leads to the sword well, I think Harry has always been a creature of instinct. So many times in the books, he's the one who reacts to danger the quickest. He obviously has the best sense of Voldemort because he's sharing a head with him. So his instincts in this book are are leading them on or, or should be leading them on. Um, Lupin's message to Harry is to listen to his instincts, which are good and nearly always right. So he follows his instincts that this creature is just is too pure, is too good. And really, you know, as we who read have read the books before spoiler alert it's snape's deme- uh, not to mentor <laughs> it's snape's patronus which is lily which is harry's mother because he has this undying love for lily potter which is weird but we won't judge him for that um gosh i lost track of it because i have so just so many conundrums about snape the dough <laughs> is good it is a connection to harry's mother and he's able to feel that connection even without his conscious mind knowing it I really love that Ron is there and rescues Harry from the water. Ron as a character Mm. throughout these books is always, and this scene talks about it is always slightly to slightly to one side and behind Harry, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Flanking like in move, like in movie posters, you have Harry in the middle and then Ron and Hermione on the other side of him. Absolutely. With their hair blowing in the wind or something. (laughs) Um, but Ron, the scene where he actually does encounter the, the, the open locket, we see all of the things that have been churning in Ron for seven years. 
the locket is not really making up anything. It's just amplifying the negative thoughts that Ron has had about himself and about his relationships. Perspective. It, put, it puts a lot of perspective on his reactions that if he really has this secret, like what my, you know, like what a therapist might call like the tapes that play in your head that like, he's not good enough. He's second best. He's got all these great older brothers. His mother always wanted a daughter. His best friend is obviously, you know, going to get the girl he loves. Um, that all, we saw a little bit, in, a bit of it in book four, when he and Harry have a fight about the, whether or not Harry entered the Triwizard tournament, but this, we really, we see it played out like physically, like Harry and Ron, Harry and Hermione emerge from the locket in like shadowy form and start making out and, and taunting him. And it's horrible in that Ron is, I'm pretty sure Ron knows most of the time that that's not true, but in his moments of vulnerability or hanger, as we found out when he's <laughs> hungry and, and frustrated and wearing this Horcrux, it works deeply on him and he finds himself believing those lies that he's telling himself. And this really is, this is like an exorcism of a way it is a cleansing. And I imagine the relationship Harry and Ron have after this is closer and more vulnerable as a result. I mean, they're teenage boys. So like, they're not going to talk about it, but there's gotta be a level of trust when you see your best friend's demons laid bare and watch him conquer them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really a moment of triumph for Ron. Uh, and I think that Ron's journey back to the group is really fascinating. I, I want to go to a piece of the Book of Common Prayer for a second, mm. if, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, no, I don't mind. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Very much do not mind. <laughs> All right. So on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent every year, we read something called the Invitation to the Observance of a Holy Lent. Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and resurrection, and it became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. This season of Lent provided a time in which converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, had been separated from the body of the faithful, were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness and restored to the fellowship of the church. Thereby, the whole congregation was put in mind of the message of pardon and absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior and of the need which all Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith. When I, when I read Ron's journey back to Harry and Hermione, I see that as, as his Ash Wednesday moment of, mm -hmm. of, or his Lent moment of coming back into the body of the faithful in a way. And he recognized right away that, that he had um, broken those relationships. And then he spends weeks and months trying to come back and he's just not able to. Uh, and then it's not until Harry and Hermione in a way invite him back by saying his name on Christmas morning. Uh, and he hears the name in the deluminator and knows that, um, that they are still thinking about him, that they still um, perhaps would want him to be part of their group. And at that moment, the, the light uh, goes into Ron. And once it was inside me, he says, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew it would take me where I needed to go. Another image of call and discernment bringing Ron back into uh, this right relationship with, with uh, Harry and Hermione, um, just as we're called to bring people back into right relationship when folks have strayed uh, because 
if the church isn't a place of forgiveness and a place where we can all together, as it says, renew our repentance, repentance here being that change in paradigm, that, that renewing of, of our hearts and our lives so that we come closer and closer to be the people who God calls us to be. If we're not that, then the, then the church really isn't, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Mm. And isn't that, I think our call as pastors to be like Dumbledore, not, he gives Ron the deluminator of all three of them. Ron says, because he knows I would walk out, but no, Harry says it's because he knows he knew that you would want to come back. I think our role as a church is to provide a route to come back. Like when we, when we do the baptismal covenant, we don't say when, if you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord, we say, whenever you fall into sin, assuming that we will do that. So Dumbledore has very intelligently given Ron a path back in terms of, of his desire to go back. He has to want it. He has to follow the light, but that the people he's searching for Harry and Hermione have to also invite him back in, as you said, by saying his name and Dumbledore offered a tool in order to do that. And I wonder if Dumbledore created the Duluminator specifically because he himself had been lost earlier on in his life. And he was Mm. trying to come up with a magical way to, discern a path forward. I like that. Because originally the deluminator is just something that's in Harry Potter number one that mm-hmm. clicks the off outer. the lights, the put out, yeah. right? Um, but what if Dumbledore had invented it because after all of the the issues with his family and uh, that we we learn about in the the life and lives of Albus Dumbledore, uh, what if he his path was was bleak and he didn't know where to go? And so he was trying to come up with a way to discern his path. And he, maybe he created the deluminator as a way mm. to, you know, have a, a ball of light go inside him too, to help him move forward and, and become the person he was supposed to be. I wonder if he used it before Aberforth bought the, the goat in what's it called? The hogshead. <laughs> the hogshead. I wonder if Albus used it to find him. If, if that relationship was starting to be mended through that because they're not ever buddy buddy by the end, but they're cordial. He says he knows the local bartender quite well. Um, I wonder if he was using it as a way back to his last remaining family member. Okay. So leaving Dumbledore and the deluminator aside, is Hermione Mm -hmm. translating the tales of Beetle the Bard into English as she's reading it? Yes. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Translating on the fly. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Hermione is a smart cookie. We all know this. I also, this is a beautiful scene in the films that's adapted so so wonderfully with like the ink block creatures. And I also Mm -hmm. love, I don't know if it was intentional, but Ron interrupts and is like, Oh, my mom always said they're rocking on the road at midnight. And in the movie he says, but twilight's better, which at the time (laughs) in the great, Harry Potter versus Twilight Wars was a controversial thing to say, oh, even if it so wasn't funny. Meant, meant that way. Wait, the audience, he, but isn't he just trying to? He's trying to get back into Hermione's good graces at that moment, by, isn't by he? walking back. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not so much in in the book. He's like, I just think it's a bit spookier if it's midnight. Like, yeah, right. He he, he doubles down in the book. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's so I love this story though because it does show the the hubris of humankind both to try to overpower one another or to steal people who have passed beyond who are no longer in pain or suffering back from death and the sort of moral of the story being that the wisest choice is to live a long good healthy life and then to embrace death as a friend 
And I also think it's funny when they say like, it's obvious what, what item you should pick. They all three of them pick a different item. And it's just very telling about each of the characters that Hermione, of course, makes the quote right answer of the invisibility cloak. Harry naturally wants the stone to revisit those he has lost. And he will, in fact, have the stone and get a chance to have a moment of closure with the three marauders plus his mother. And then Ron, of course, wants the elder one. But like, come on, Ron, do better. You just came back from... You're in your point of repentance. You're in your <laughs> Lenten season. He's still working on it. Yeah. <sighs> Which one would you want if you had to pick one? I don't know. I've never thought of I think I'd want the cloak, right? I don't. Yeah, I'd want the cloak because I believe in the community of all saints. So I don't really feel the need to speak to the dead that I have lost in that way. Um, I've been lucky in that all the, most of the people I've loved dearly are still alive. So ask me again in 40 years. I hope what we're about, still friends in 40 years. Let's, let's still be friends in 40 years. That's right. <laughs> Podcast season <laughs> 37 or whatever. I'm happy to be connected in our brains through like a yeah. tube in the back of my head. Beaming, beaming through the, through Sitting the quantum. Sitting in the holodeck, across through, the holodeck yeah, from my through, friend Adam through Thomas. Through the quantum realm. <laughs> uh, yeah, what I, would I you pick, Adam? I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, well, first, the resurrection stone is badly named. Any anytime mm. in fantasy, here, here's a soapbox. Anytime in fantasy or science fiction, when the word resurrection is used, it's used incorrectly. It should be like resuscitation yeah, stone because it is not about because resurrection is not about bringing people back from the dead. Resurrection right. is new life. So the spell resurrection in Dungeons and Dragons, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever, that is not the same thing. That's what happens to Lazarus in John eleven. Yeah, that he is. There's he's dead four days, and he is brought back to life. He's still Lazarus. He's gonna die again. Resurrection is something completely different. Anyway, okay. And soapbox. I dodged the question because I honestly I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Well, I think the wand would be helpful though if you used it for good. Like Harry uses it to repair his wand. Sure. Yeah. There you go. If okay, I would I'll like use that. it to like extreme healing magic of people who are like grievously injured in terrible accidents. Yeah. Okay. So as long as you use the elder one for good, we can, or we like can Dumbledore, say that. like keeping it, but not, I don't know. These don't exist really. Yeah. Cause how long, how, how long does Dumbledore have it? He gets it from Grindelwald. Yeah. And like the forties and their duel. So he has it for like 50 oh, years. 50 years. Yeah. That's right, folks. These books take place in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows chapters 23 to 27. That's Malfoy Manor. The Wandmaker, Shell Cottage, Gringotts, and The Final Hiding Place. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Vampire Mist is his newest book, and it's a story about a group of friends who conquer vampires and ancient evils, all the while having lots of fun together as friends do. As always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. God is present in every corner and crevice of the galaxy on a million alien shores, spinning all life into being. May God and whatever guys you find bless you, keep you, inspire you, and guide you in all your journeys. Amen. <laughs>